two summers ago, Katie and I had this amazing opportunity to go to Israel. It was kind of one of things I dreamed about when we were in seminary. I was like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if one day I could actually go to Israel? And both of us were like, well, you know, it's going to take us like years to save up enough money. But somebody graciously offered to send us there for free on this study tour. And so we went um, and we got to go to all these biblical sites and we had this native of Israel as our tour guide. And we landed in Israel, got on our tour bus, and Eitan, our tour guide, introduced himself. And as soon as the bus started moving, Eitan was on it. He was telling us, this is what you're seeing out this window, this is what you're seeing here, and he's telling us about the history and the geography and landscape of Israel. And he also, a lot of us, he was saying like really interesting things. He was a really good tour guide. He had like this soothing voice, and a lot of us kind of had a hard time staying awake sometimes. Like we were just like taking in so much information, we'd just be like, oh, he's just so relaxing. And then he would be like, I saw you were asleep back then. We're like, no, no, it's not you. It's so interesting. Your voice is just really relaxing. So I don't know, maybe if your voice is relaxing, don't go into the tour guide business. You need a really annoying voice or something. But um, we would stop at all these historical sites that you read about in the Bible, and we walk around these ancient ruins. And as we traveled, Israel, Eitan was, he was keeping us on time. He was making arrangements for us to enter certain places. And um, he's opening our eyes to the history and geography of the land. And um, he's enlightening us with this knowledge about these ancient locations that we we're visiting. And if we didn't have him, we wouldn't have not known where to go. We wouldn't have known what to do. And we wouldn't have gotten the knowledge about those places um, that he was able to give us. And today we're continuing our series called Living the Good News Together. And we're asking the question, well, how do we as a church family live in light of the good news about Jesus? And just take a moment to flip to the back of your songbook. There's only one more message left where you'll have to do this. We've done this every single message. We flip to the very back page of the songbook. Uh, it's number 46. At the top it says, what is Good News Church all about? And this has been our roadmap for this series. <clears throat> so our first message we covered, our mission statement at the top, which is, as a community we are surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. But then we might ask, well, okay, that's our mission. Well, how do we do that? How do we surrender all of life to Jesus? How do we invite other people to do the same? Well, that's answered by our community practices in the middle there. And so we do that by practicing believing the gospel, living as family, loving as servants, going as messengers, relying on the Spirit. And we do all this, you may ask, well, what's the purpose of doing all this? At the bottom is our vision, so that as the family of God, we can show and tell the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child. And so thus far, we've covered our mission at the top. We've covered four of our community practices, and today we're on relying on the Spirit. That's what we're going to be covering today. And relying on the Spirit, if you notice in that, you don't have to take it back up, but you may have noticed that believing the gospel and relying on the Spirit are kind of like on the same level, and then living as family, loving as servants are kind of invented. And that's because believing the gospel and relying on the Spirit go hand in hand. Because when we believe the good news about Jesus, um, we, we're putting our faith in Christ, and now we're saying, I'm going to live in light of this good news. News is about something that's happening. You know, if we heard there's an earthquake you know, over in the next county, that would change how we're going to live tomorrow because, wow, maybe we get an earthquake here. Maybe we have to build our houses different. Maybe we have to prepare for that sort of thing. But that news is going to change how we live today. And so when we hear the good news about Jesus and believe it, now we need help living in light of that good news. What does it mean to now live with Jesus as our king? What does it mean to now live as forgiven people who have had our debt wiped away, um, our debt of sin wiped away? And so that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. He's the one um, who helps He's like our tour guide, showing us how to live this new way of life, how to live in light of the good news of Jesus. 
We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26, in order to learn more about relying on the Spirit. And the big question we're going to be answering is this. What kind of people live like Jesus the most? What kind of people live like Jesus the most? So with that question in our mind, what kind of people live like Jesus the most? Let's return, um, just get a little background in Galatians chapter 5. And it's, as a, it, if you lost in your Bible, it's on page 975 in the Bibles we provided. But this, these words that we read earlier were written by a man named Paul, um, who lived in the first century, just right around the time that Jesus lived. And when he first heard the message about Jesus, he thought that Jesus was a fraud, and that forgiveness that he was offering was a sham. He's like, this is not real at all. And so he became um, a guy that was trying to stop Christianity from spreading. But his life radically changed when Jesus, because uh, he, he's thinking, Jesus is in the tomb. He didn't die for his sins. He's not resurrected. And one day Jesus meets him alive uh, on, on his way to somewhere. And that changed his life. And from then on, he spent his life spreading the good news about Jesus. And one of the places he went was Galatia, where he announced the gospel to the people. And they believed it. And this church community was formed. And this book... Galatians, uh, of Galatians that we're looking at is actually a letter that he wrote to that church. And he wrote it because the people were in trouble. They needed some counsel from Paul. They needed Paul to send a letter to them. And the reason they were in trouble is because there was this particular group of Jews at the time um, who believed that you needed Jesus plus something in order to be right with God. Um, Paul and this group, they're called the Judaizers. Um, they believe, Paul's saying, you just need Jesus. And they're saying, no, you need Jesus plus something else. And both of them, Paul and the Judaizers, they agree on the problem. They believe that everyone has a sin problem, um, that everyone has broken God's law, and because everyone's broken God's law, everyone stands guilty and condemned in God's law court. They agree that that's the problem. We all want to be on the thrones of our life and instead of letting God call the shots. They agree that this is humanity's problem. And they agree that there's a penalty for a sin. They all believe, they all, they both agreed that we have a sin problem, and they agree on the penalty. We're condemned in God's law court. Breaking God's laws means we face divine judgment. And they also agree that sin exercises power over us. It has this grip on us and this influence in our lives. And, and Paul calls this grip it has on us the flesh. It's the impulse inside of us to disobey God. And so they agree on all this stuff. They agree on the problem. But what they don't agree on is the solution. The Judaizers think obeying the law is the answer to everything. The law um, is a chunk of scripture found in the Old Testament that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, um, and it was the, often referred to as the Old Covenant. They think that's the answer to everything. We just need to obey the laws that gave, God gave us through Moses. And so when they're answering the question, how do we deal with our sin problem? They say, obey the law. How do we deal with the penalty of sin? Obey the law and you'll be right with God. How do we deal with the power of sin? Obey the law. Turn from sin and do what the law says. That's the Judaizers' solution. And in the first four chapters of this letter, Paul is presenting his solution to the penalty of sin. The Judaizers say, here's the penalty of sin. Um, we are guilty in God's law court. How do you become righteous? How do you become innocent in God's law court? Obey the law. That's their answer. But Paul's saying, no, right standing with God by obeying the law, it's impossible. You can't obey the whole law. You can never make yourself innocent once you're guilty in God's law court. You've sinned. And he says the only way to have a right standing with God is to be forgiven of the penalty for your sins by grace through faith in Jesus. That's the only way you can be free from the penalty 
of your sin. And so that's chapters 1 through 4. And now in chapters 5 and 6 where we are at, Paul is answering the question, well, how do we deal with the power of sin? How can we be free from its grip? How can we stop following the impulses of our flesh? How can we live for Jesus after he's freed us from the penalty of sin? How do we be free from the power of sin? That's what he's now asking in these chapters. And so let's pick up uh, in verse 13 of chapter 5. Let me reread verses 13 and 14. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As we said, Paul's been teaching in the first four chapters that Jesus, through his death, has paid the penalty for our sin. Condemnation, guilt, that's what we deserve. Jesus paid that. Penalty of sin taken away. We can be forgiven. But Jesus, um, he's paid that penalty, and now we're, now we're free. And it's a free gift given out of God's grace. And all you have to do is receive it. It's given to you. Freely, We don't have to do anything for it. You just receive it by faith in Jesus. The gospel calls us to freedom from the penalty of our sin. That's what Paul's saying here. But people, when they hear that, are going to respond one of two ways. Some people really love the law. Some people really hate the law. So people who love the law, they're going to hear, wait, you can, forgiveness is free. You can be right with God for free. You can get your charges thrown out just for free without doing anything. You don't have to obey the law. So some people are going to say, well, if people are forgiven without obeying the law, What's going to keep them from just sinning? They're just going to keep sinning. They're going to say, oh, it's free. I can just do whatever I want now. Those are people who love the law. People who hate the law are going to say, oh, cool. I can sin so, as much as I want because I'm already forgiven, right? And so there's people are going to say, like, people are just going to sin all they want. And people, other people are going to say, oh, I get to sin all I want. Those are the two reactions. And Paul tells both groups, no, you're wrong. Both groups are wrong. And because when Jesus frees us from the penalty of our sin... That doesn't mean we now use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to follow our sinful desires. That's what he says, our our flesh, that's our sinful desires, our desire to disobey God, to be selfish, to be on the throne of our lives. Jesus frees us from the penalty of our sin, he says, so that we can now, through love, serve one another. He says, that's what you've been freed for. Obeying the law could not make us right with God. There's no way that could free us from the penalty of our sin. But now that we have been freed, were to now fulfill what the law was all about. It was all about love. Love your neighbor as yourself, Paul says. That fulfills the whole law. And in verse 15, he addresses a problem that the Judaizers are creating. They're coming in, they're saying, you need Jesus plus something, you need the law. And what it's creating is there's conflict. People are starting to fight with one another. So he says um, in verse 15, he warns them, telling them, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So they're kind of... They're coming into this church with this, this view and the people are starting to argue and take sides and they're starting to debate and create rifts and divisions. And um, Paul's saying, like, look, this is a horrible thing that's happening because have you ever been, like, like, looked at an aquarium with fish in it and you see, like, all the fish have been picking on one specific fish and its fins are kind of ripped up and he's all jagged. And it's, kinda, it's, like, really sad to look at um, and it's gross. And that's the image Paul's giving here. He's saying you're a church community, and you're supposed to be loving one another, but instead you're biting at each other, and you're wounding each other, and this is just going to lead to consuming one another. It's like relational cannibalism. They're just like tearing each other apart. In verses 16 through 26, Paul is going to give his solution to this problem. He's saying, like, look, here's the issue that's happening. Like, you're not supposed to be using your freedom from the penalty of sin 
as an opportunity to sin um, and hurt one another. And here's what you need to do instead. The law is not the answer. Here's the answer. How are they going to not act selfishly? He says in verse 16, um, verses 16 through 18, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Before someone believes in Jesus, they are totally ruled by their sinful desires. And Paul calls this inner inclination to go our own way, to disobey God, the flesh. It means we have this gravitational pull in our lives towards selfishness and towards pride and away from God. We all want to be, it means we want to be the center of everything. We want to be on the throne. We want to be calling the shots. We want to be the king or queen of our lives. We don't want anybody else to tell us what to do. It means that we are sinners by nature, um, our flesh, we're sinners by nature, that's our sinful nature, and by choice. So it's who we are and it's what we do. But when someone trusts in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends his personal presence to dwell inside us. Jesus frees us from the penalty of our sin by providing forgiveness, and he frees us from the power of our sin by providing the Holy Spirit who renews us and restores us. We're sinners by nature. It's who we are. We have this sinful nature living inside of us, um, but the Holy Spirit comes and he renews us and restores us so we can now obey God. Um, Our sinful nature is what pulls us away from God to follow our own ways, and the Spirit is what pulls us toward God to follow his ways. And even though we have the Spirit and we are free of the power of the flesh, we still have to make a choice. Because Paul says, look, he says, the flesh and the spirit, they're opposed to one another. Both of these are existing inside of you at one, at the same time. We're free from sin's power, but we're not free from sin's presence. Sin is still present in our lives. And Paul says, we must walk by the spirit if we're to live free from the power of sin. The Judaizers, they thought that rules and laws were the solution. Just put enough rules, put enough policies, put enough laws, and if you follow these, you won't be gratifying the desires of your sinful nature. Paul says, no, the Spirit's the answer. The Spirit's the only one who can set you free from the desires of your flesh. You can think of it like the tour guide. Before we came to Christ, the only tour guide in our life was the flesh. We followed this tour guide in whatever sinful paths it wanted to take us, and it was the only thing leading us anywhere. But when we trust in Jesus, we're given a new tour guide in our life. We're given the Holy Spirit. We're freed from the power of our old tour guide. And we follow the Spirit's lead who wants to lead us out of sin and lead us closer to God and lead us to be more like Jesus. And the next verses make this clear. Paul is going to give these two lists. One catalog, the works of the flesh or acts of the flesh. And the other gives the fruit of the Spirit. The flesh wants us to take us down the path to one list. The Spirit wants to take us down the path to the other list. And so... We can't go through and define every single one of these. Um, I can let you, you know, look up what the words mean in your own time. Um, but basically, the flesh wants to put us on the throne so that we determine what's right and wrong instead of having God on the throne determining what's right and wrong. The flesh, um, want these works of the flesh break down into four categories. And so we'll just, we'll just cover these four categories. Um, and there's way more you know, sinful acts that we could cover, but this is like a list characteristic of what Um, what the flesh leads us to do. And so the first three are sexual. Um, He says sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality. And then all these are saying, I do what I want with my body. I'm on the throne. I do what I want with my body. And God tells us that the only appropriate place for sexual intimacy is between one man and 
one woman in the context of marriage. But our flesh leads us to say, well, I'm going to do what I want with my body, and I'm going to enjoy sexual intimacy when I want and with whom I want it. And the next two are religious. He says idolatry and sorcery. And these are saying, well, I worship who I want. I don't, I'm not going to worship the one true God. I'm going to worship whoever I want. And you may think about, like, well, I don't you know, worship anything. But just think about whatever you look to for your sense of security and safety and peace and satisfaction in life. That's what you're worshiping. And then and now, um, there are many other gods that we can look to besides the, you know, gods besides the one true God. We can look to relationships or work or money or stuff to give us only what God could give us. And anytime we do that, we're worshiping something other than the one we're supposed to worship. In the next eight, he goes over our relational. He lists off enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And all these are saying, I treat others how I want. You know, God tells me I'm supposed to love people. I'm going to treat others how I want. And this category is the biggest because we've seen, in, you know, remember the little aquarium image. Paul's saying, like, there's relational issues in this church. And so he makes this category the biggest one because he's trying to say, like, this is what the Spirit um, will lead you away from. You're seeing this in your church, and this is what the Spirit should lead you away from. And remember, they're um, biting and devouring one another. And Paul's already told them, he's already said it in just a couple of verses ago, that the law was all about loving others, but the flesh leads us to love ourselves and treat others how we want instead of how God has treated us and how he asks us to treat others. And the last two he lists are religious rituals, drunkenness and orgies. Idolatry and sorcery are about worshiping who I want, and these religious rituals are saying, I worship how I want. And there was religions in that day, um, and they would worship their gods um, by getting drunk um, and by having orgies. Um, we have, all have rituals and activities um, to worship our gods too. If work is your god, your ritual is to overwork and neglect your family or other things God has called you to do. If your god is comfort, your ritual is to avoid responsibility and activity and to get mad when more is asked of you. And if your god is respect, your ritual is to demand others show it to you and get mad when they don't. If your God is approval, your ritual is to inform people of your accomplishments so you can receive their praise. And you know, just plug anything in. Here's my God. Oh, what's the ritual I go through to worship that God? How do I try to get um, things from that God? And when I read through, I mean, I always find it interesting reading through the, the works of the flesh. A lot of them I feel pretty good about. Sorcery? Well, never tried that. Drunkenness and orgies? All clear there. But then there's other parts that I don't feel so great about. Jealousy? Yeah, I, I get jealous. Fits of anger? Yeah, I get angry sometimes. Or he says, enmity and strife? Yeah, I can sometimes hold frustration in my heart against another person. And, and sometimes I'm following where the tour guide of my flesh wants me to go instead of where the spirit wants me to go. And I imagine, um, mo I'd expect all of us to be, to be the same. Like some of these were like, yeah, I'm clear of that one, but like, ooh, yeah, I feel jealous. Yeah, I feel envy. Oh, yeah, I feel anger. Um, and so some of them maybe hit us different than others. But Paul ends the, the list with this warning in the second part uh, of verse 21. <clears throat> he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And after all we've said, we may kind of wonder, well, wait a minute. So if I do any of these things, I can't be a part of God's kingdom. I can't go to heaven. I can't um, 
go and enjoy God's presence? What about grace? What about forgiveness? What about all the stuff we just talked about with Jesus paying the penalty for my sin? Does this mean I have to live a perfect life in order to be part of God's kingdom? Well, no. Grace is real. Forgiveness is real. Salvation is real. This isn't about earning our way into God's kingdom. But when the Bible talks about inheriting the kingdom of God, it's talking about when Jesus returns to set things, all things right and to completely take care of our sin problem because he's going to make everything new. And we've already covered Jesus in the past has freed us from the penalty of our sin. We deserve guilt and condemnation, but we've been forgiven. And in the present, Jesus is freeing us from the power of our sin. The Holy Spirit is given to us, so we don't have to say yes to our, um, the flesh's impulses and desires. We can live free of that. But in the future, Jesus will return, and he will free us from the presence of sin. Sin will be no more. Right now, sin is still present in our life. We are not enslaved to it. It doesn't have power over us if we've trusted in Jesus. Um, but sin is still here, even though we can say no to it. And so if you think about it, if someone wants to follow the tour guide of their flesh, it means that they love being on the throne. And a person who loves being on the throne of their life isn't going to like God's kingdom very much, because in God's kingdom, God is on the throne. And if someone loves sin, they're not going to love God's kingdom very much, because God's kingdom is a place where there is no sin. And if someone lives to serve themselves, they're not going to like God's kingdom very much because in God's kingdom, you serve God because he's the king. And so someone who does all these things, they're living for their own kingdom, and so they will not inherit God's kingdom. They have made a choice about who's the king of their lives. That's what this verse is saying. It doesn't say we earn our way into God's kingdom. It's saying if this is what you love, you know, you're not going to like this place, and you're not going to inherit this place. You have to make God the king of your life in order to be a part of God's kingdom. So in contrast to where the tour guide of the flesh takes someone, Paul gives a list for where the tour guide of the Spirit takes someone, starting in verse 22. And we'll just cover this very shortly. Love headlines the list because that's what should be defining um, the defining factor in our relationships with others. We already saw it. Paul says, love your neighbor as yourself fulfills the law. And when we're forgiven our sin, um, it also fills us up um, with joy and peace. These are the things that come. Like when you hear... Uh, that, oh, man, I just have this long, you know, rap sheet, or this long resume of all my sins. And then God says, nope, you know, that's nailed to the cross, and that's taken care of. You're totally forgiven of it. It's like, what will, we respond with love for the person who's done that. We have this, this joy, there's this weight lifted off us. And all of a sudden we have peace. We're not wondering, like, oh, am I right with God? Have I done enough? We just know, like, he's crumpled that whole thing up, and he's nailed it to the cross, and it's done. And so that brings love and joy and peace to us. But love isn't, isn't only internal. Love is shown in action. And so he says there's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These define the actions of love. And all these make up the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says, well, against such things there is no law. And this is the place the Spirit leads someone. And if you're practicing these things, you're not going to find any laws against these, these things. There's no, nothing that's going to forbid these attitudes and these actions. And at the same time, how could a law really require these things? How could a, a law demand you be patient or a law demand you be joyful? You know, how could any, you know, think of our country or Woodstock or whatever setting up a law that says you need to be joyful and if we find you not being joyful, you're going to get a fine. It's like, well, you can't really like put laws on things like that. They can't be enforced. Therefore, the law could never produce these attitudes and actions. Maybe the law can set a speed limit and produce that action, but the law can't produce patience. The law can't produce peace in us. That's something only the Spirit can do. 
And notice the fundamental difference between the two, the flesh and the spirit. Following the two two regard of the flesh leads to the works of the flesh. This is something we do. It comes from our flesh, from our sinful nature. It comes out of us. We produce it. But on the opposite end, following the two regard of the spirit leads to the fruit of the spirit. The fruit comes from him. The spirit is the one who produces it. They belong to him. They come from him. He's the one who grows them in us. Paul makes clear in verse 24 that um, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, a change happens inside of us um, so that we're able to produce, or so that the Spirit's able to produce the fruit, uh, His fruit inside of us. He says in verse 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We used to live by our flesh, with its passions, with its desires, with its interests. But now we've crucified our, sl- our flesh. It's been put to death. That sinful nature inside of us has been put to death. We belong to Jesus now, and we live by the Spirit. We no longer live by the flesh. Now we live by the Spirit. And the power that sin once had over us and our old life of being on the throne is gone and dead and buried. We now live with Jesus on the throne, and we now live according to the Spirit. And because the Spirit has given us new spiritual life, we ought to keep in step with this Spirit, he says. You could say we're to to march in line with the Spirit. He's marching, he's going somewhere, and we're supposed to keep in step with him. The Spirit is leading us, and now we need to keep in step with where he's leading us. And earlier he said we need to walk by the Spirit. We need to keep on the path down which the Spirit is guiding us. In verse 26, Paul again emphasizes, well, where is the Spirit taking you? He's taking you toward love of others where we, we're not conceited, we're not provoking, we're not envying one another. So we're turning to our big question that we're answering. What kind of people live like Jesus the most? And the answer is those who rely on the Spirit. Those who rely on the Spirit. The kind of people who live like Jesus the most are those who rely on the Spirit. We all need to know this. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to know that you need the Spirit, to live like Jesus. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, we're committing to live like Him, to follow His attitude and His actions in all of life. But we need the Spirit to do that. He's the one that produces that fruit in us. The Spirit comes and takes Jesus' character, His attitude, His actions, and puts it inside of us and grows it in us. He's our tour guide who leads us to live like Jesus. Perhaps you're thinking, which I've often thought, in my life, and so you aren't alone in this, Um, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't sense the Spirit's guidance in my life. I don't feel like God is really working in me or working through me. I feel like He's kind of distant. I don't feel like He's giving me power to overcome my sin. I just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And so if that's the case, perhaps it's because, and it probably means you've stopped keeping in step with the Spirit. The Spirit never leaves us, so it's not like He's going to just go, once God seals us with His Holy Spirit, We have the Holy Spirit forever, but we can ignore the Spirit and miss out on His guidance in our life. And just to return to our time in Israel, we had these earpieces, and Eitan, our tour guide, he had this microphone that he spoke into, so as we traveled as a group, we could hear him in our earpieces. But they only had a certain amount of range, so sometimes, you know, I kind of get distracted. I like to kind of explore every nook and and cranny of, of places. Katie knows this. It's like we go hiking and she just had to get used to like, oh my gosh, she's just going to take us 30 minutes to wander around to every spot. But she's gotten used to it. She goes on the adventures with me now. But 
Um, that was the same thing in Israel, and there's other people who shared my same uh, habit of kind of like, you know, we need to explore everything and see everything. So we'd fall behind, Eitan would get ahead of us, and he'd keep talking, but eventually the, the microphone would get weak and then crackly, and then it'd just cut out altogether. And so he's still explaining stuff, he's still leading the tour, but we're not hearing any part of it. So sometimes we have to be like, okay, we've got to catch up so we can go and hear what Eitan is saying again. Um, and the point is, in order to hear the tour guide's voice, and be led by him, we needed to keep in step with our tour guide. He had certain places he wanted to take us, certain things he wanted us to do, but in order to experience his leading and all that, we needed to keep in step with him and walk his path that he was going and not our own path. In the same way, Jesus has certain places he wants to take us, and Jesus has certain things he wants us to do, and the Spirit was given to us in order to lead us there. The Spirit wants to make us more like Jesus, and what Jesus was all about, he was devoted to doing God's will. And so if we devote ourselves to doing God's will, to follow Jesus and doing that, then going where Jesus sends us and doing what Jesus wants to do, where we will experience the Spirit guiding us and empowering us to do those things. That's the purpose for which he was given to us, to lead us into doing God's will just like Jesus was. And here's another way you can think about it. My dad um, is a carpenter. And so he's helped with lots of projects around our house. And there's lots of things that I don't know how to do. And so he has to teach me how to do it. And so, you know, just imagine there's like this thing that I need to do. And he's like, okay, here's the things you need. Here's the material you need. Here's how you can build this thing. And then maybe I'd say, but I don't have the right tool for it. He was, you know, not to worry. I, he's a carpenter, so he has tons of tools. You know, I have the right tool. And so I'll leave you with the right tool so you can get this job done. So he bids, heads back to the Wisconsin and leaves me with the right tool for the job. And now imagine I don't work on the project at all. He calls me in two weeks and he asks, well, how's that tool working out? Well, I'd say, I haven't used it at all. And he'd ask, what? Why not? Well, because I haven't worked on the project at all. And so because I hadn't worked on the project, I wouldn't know what the tool is like because I haven't done the job for which the tool was given to me. But alternatively, he could ask, well, how's that tool working? And I could say, oh, I haven't used it. And he could ask, well, why not? And I could say, well, you know, I figured out how to do it a different way. I'm using my own method. It's been really hard, but I'm, I figured doing out how to do it a different way. In the first instance, the tool did me no good because I never went and did the job for which the tool was given. In the second instance, the tool did me no good because I decided to use my own methods to get the job done without the tool. But in both instances, the tool was available to me the whole time, yet I didn't use it. And let, let me be clear, the Spirit isn't a tool. Spirit isn't like the force. Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. God, three persons, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Spirit is fully God. He's a full person, and he comes and dwells inside of us. And so he's not a tool or like the force or something, but we do the same thing with the Spirit as what I was describing with the tool my dad would have left me. Even though he's present with us and available to us as a guide, we often don't experience the Spirit. Well, why? One option is we aren't doing the job for which he was given. The Spirit was given to us so we could live like Jesus. And if we aren't following Jesus, then we, why would we be experiencing the Spirit? Because that was the thing that he was given to us to do. The second option is that we're trying to live like Jesus, but we're trying to do it on our own power, using our own methods. We're just doing it our own way. We're saying, I know you gave me the Spirit, and he's the one who's supposed to help me with this, but I'm going to do it my own way. We're relying on ourselves to do the job. And over the past three weeks, we've, we've talked about three of our community practices that tell us that uh, we've been given a new identity when we believe the gospel. God makes us into family and servants 
and messengers. And so we live as family, we love as servants, and we go as messengers. But we can't do any of these without the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit, the gospel tells us this new identity. The Holy Spirit enables us to live this new identity. And Jesus did all of these. Um, he lived his family. He called people to follow him, and he relied on them for help. He loved people as a servant, and he um, went as a messenger of God's kingdom. And he calls all of us to do that as well. But we can't live like Jesus on our own power. And so if you start stepping out to do these three activities, live as family, love as servants, go as messengers, while asking the Spirit to help you, I'm confident that you will begin to experience his guidance in your life. And at first you might be like, you know, actually what I'm feeling is I don't want to do this. Um, and that's, you know, remember the, the flesh is opposed to the spirit, the spirit is opposed to the flesh. And so in that moment, you're stepping out to do something that you don't normally do. You're stepping out to follow Jesus, to live like Jesus. And you're, you know, your flesh is saying like, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to live with someone else on the throne. I don't want you to live, you know, step out and um, love somebody like, um, like you've been loved and lay down your life for them. I don't want you to go tell somebody else about Jesus. So the spirit or the flesh is pulling you back. I want you to say, like, no, I'm going to say no to that. I'm going to say yes to the Spirit's leading and live like Jesus. And I think why we experience the Spirit's guidance in these areas is because all of them require leaving our comfort zone. And we need to, we always need to step out of our comfort zone to live like Jesus. It's comfortable to do what we're able to do in our own power. And it's comfortable to keep life the same and how we want it. But Jesus was always calling people, like, you know, you need to follow me. Step out of what you're doing. Step out of what you're comfortable with, with your life that you've built, and step out and follow me. Leaving our comfort zone requires trust in someone else to get us through. When we, you know, there's lots of things that I feel comfortable doing. There's many things I feel very uncomfortable doing. And so if I'm asked to do that, I have to trust, you know, if, if my dad was teaching me how to build something, I'd have to trust him to tell me, okay, this is what you do. You have to do this and that. I'm trusting somebody else's guidance, experience, and expertise. And if we leave what we're comfortable with and what we're used to, we have to trust someone else. And living as family, loving as messengers, and going as, sorry, living as family, loving as servants, and going as messengers are all ways we can live like Jesus. And they're totally beyond our human ability to accomplish. So here's something you can think about this week. Which one of these do you need to do? And let me just give you three simple ways you could do each of, each of them. To live as family, Ask someone for help. <clears throat> a really easy way to live as family with other people is to ask someone for help. Our flesh tells us, you can't ask people for help. You need to do it on your own. You need to figure this out. You can't ask someone to help with your kids or shovel your snow or bring you something because you're sick. You can't ask someone to help you understand the Bible. You can't ask someone for prayer. You can't ask people to comfort you when you're, when you're sad. It doesn't matter how overwhelmed or in over your head you are. You need to be able to do this on your own. That's what our flesh tells us. But we need to say no to our flesh and yes to the Spirit who gives us a spiritual family so that we don't have to go it alone. So to live as family, ask someone for help. To love as a servant, give someone your help. To love as a servant, give someone your help. Our flesh tells us you don't have time to help others. You've got your own stuff to worry about. They can help themselves. They need to figure this out. They're adults. Or maybe it tells you, well, you don't really have anything to offer. You don't have your life together, so how are you going to go offer somebody else help? We need to say no to our flesh and yes to the Spirit who calls us to love others as servants just like Jesus has loved us. And do you see how those two, how the flesh keeps us apart? The flesh tells the person who needs help, you can't ask for help. And the flesh tells the person who can give help, 
you shouldn't give help. And so it just keeps us apart. It builds up these walls and barriers and keeps us isolated. That's what our sinful nature, and a lot of times I think, you know, if Jesus described hell as a horrible place. And if you think about if our sin was just left to, to run wild, it would just keep driving us further and further apart. It would be a place with, I think hell's a place with no relationships. Some people say, joke and say like, cool, I'll go there and get to hang out with all my friends. No, I think <laughs> sin is always ripping people apart and putting up barriers between people. And I think hell is a place where you just experience the dehumanizing and the derelationshipizing that's a word of, 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 of people um, forever and ever into eternity. So lastly, to go as a messenger, ask someone their spiritual background. You've heard this last week in the message. We talked about it a bit. To go as a messenger, ask someone their spiritual background. Our flesh tells us no one is interested in this Jesus stuff. Or, or they're a good person. They don't really need Jesus. They seem like they kind of have it together. You don't want to bother them anyway. What if... What if they aren't interested or they get upset or they ask a question you can't ask or you don't want to feel embarrassed or risk losing their friendship um, or, or being weird, so just don't say anything. We need to say no to our flesh and say yes to the Spirit who sends us as messengers of good news. It's not opinion. It's not advice. It's good news that could free someone from their sin if they believe it. And we can start by asking simple questions. Well, so what's your spiritual background? Have you, did you go to church growing up or what? You know, what has been your experience with God? Or do you do something else? You know, you can find out a lot of stuff by asking um, someone's spiritual background. Because we're all spiritual. We're all on a spiritual journey. And so almost 95% of people will have an answer to that question and will be willing to talk about it because we're all searching. And so people like to talk about, yeah, this is where I've been. This is what it was like growing up. And this is where I'm at now. And so, you know, ask which one of these do you need to grow in? And pick one of them and then pray. We all need to have a pray-first reflex in our lives because if we don't rely on this Holy Spirit for our growth, we'll be lifting this heavy burden because we none of us can be free of the power of sin. It's just like you know this, these shackles with this big weighted ball holding us down, and we can't lift that on our own. And so ask the Spirit. Let Him do the heavy lifting to free you from the power of your sin and the flesh that wants to pull you in the opposite direction. In closing, if you've trusted in Jesus... Submit yourself to the tour guide of the Spirit this week. See where He leads you. If you're stepping out of your comfort zone to live as family, to love as a servant, to go as a messenger, your flesh is going to fight against you. It's going to push you in the opposite way. The flesh and the Spirit are opposed to each other, but rely on the Spirit. Go the way He tells you to go, and you will live free from the power of sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not leaving us alone to fight sin. Uh, in our own power. Thank you for giving us your power, giving us the very um, power that Jesus had when he walked the earth. And so thank you for freeing us from the penalty of our sin. Um, thank you for freeing us from the power of our sin so we can say no to it and live new lives. And thank you that we can look forward to a day when we will be free from the presence of sin because you'll make all things new and you'll wash the entire creation clean. You'll wash us completely clean. And thank you for that, Father. Would you help us now um, to receive, again, the good news of forgiveness through the Lord's Supper. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.